Dr. Russ mentioned, we will be diving back into the fruit of the Spirit this evening. You guys remember last month, um, Tawan did a wonderful job of describing kind of the fruit of the Spirit at a high level, and then even went into the, the, fruit, the first fruit of love. And then after that, Russ walked through uh, joy and peace as they relate to kind of end times and how we can even through those times can still have the joy and the peace of the Lord. But tonight, um, we did have a couple of break for the prayer and praise. We had Thanksgiving. So um, we are diving back. Tonight, we're going to be talking about peace and joy or joy and peace again, but really how it relates to us today in this life that we're living. And then we're also going to be touching on long-suffering. As a quick reminder, uh, Let's read what the fruit of the Spirit is, in case you guys have forgotten. Galatians 5, and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And as we look at these things tonight, remember that um, as we walk in the Spirit, and in turn receiving uh, and displaying the fruit of the Spirit, this is in direct contrast to us walking in the flesh and really the works of the flesh, which if you also read Galatians 5, 19 through 21, there are things like adultery, lewdness, selfish ambition, murders, and other fleshly attributes. Pastor Tito a couple weeks ago actually did more kind of an extensive um, teaching on just that... um, fleshly thing that we like to do. And and when we're looking at these things, it really is a difference um, in really what Tawan has already talked about with love and kind of the opening of fruit. And when we're looking at these, remember what Tawan said, he said love really is the foundation. And, And it really is. When we think about joy, can we have joy, true joy? And we'll talk about what that true joy really is without love first, or peace, or long-suffering. What is long-suffering if you don't have love first? We don't have the ability to have the long-suffering that God has, that that Jesus displayed, without love first. And really, that goes for the rest of them as well. I've heard this, guys, and I'm only going to mention it because if you heard it, I, I want to address it. I've heard this, I've read it, and it says that the nine fruit of the Spirit can be broken into three categories. With joy, love, peace being related to attributes of the Holy Spirit. The next three, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, as attributes to the spiritual life of man. While the last three, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, seems to point to the way in which a Christian person, person lives their life in the world. I don't know. I look at each of these and I realize that none of them are obtainable without God and without Christ and what he did for us. They are called the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a capital S, and that's for a reason. It's not the fruit of good living, the fruit of trying it ourselves. It's, it's not any of those things. It's fruit of the Spirit. And these are a gift from God, and really they are given to us to bring him glory. And when we look at these, we can look around the people around us and see that, hey, well, this person isn't saved, but 
man, they're, they're really nice. And it almost would seem like they're filled, they're filled with these fruit because of the, the things they do and, and the things they say. We have to remember, though, that without Christ, that these things, we have to first consider the heart. Like, what is their motivation? And without these things, these things are done in vain without Christ. And God knows the difference. In Matthew, the, the Bible talks a little bit about this. Uh, Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Remember, this is um, when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus regarding what he was doing and saying. The multitude had asked the question, could this be the son of David? Uh, Jesus had just healed the man. He was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. And when Jesus spoke to them about this division of the house and how it couldn't stand, this is that, that portion of Scripture. He goes on to speak to them about the impartable sin, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 33, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. And then he calls them a brood of vipers in the beginning of verse 34. We've talked about why Jesus did that, but there's a lot of reasons why Jesus called them a brood of vipers. Vipers have the ability to um, tuck their fangs in, and so you don't know that they're actually going to attack. Their words, their, their position may seem decent and, and docile, but really they're hostile. The things they do, the Pharisees did, uh, they were double-tongued. If you ever look at a viper's tongue, and it goes... Um, and then it, what's interesting, in, G in Genesis 3.14, it says, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, and we know what the, what the serpent did, You are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast in the field, and on your belly you shall go. You shall eat the dust all the days of your life. And the snake would be forever symbolic of the fall. And the snake would also symbolize Satan's future destruction. You can look at Le Leviticus, other verses in Genesis, Micah. There's a lot of verses that talk about the, the, the serpent and what he represents. And even describing how their actions, their rejection of Christ, the truth, uh, that will bring about the same destruction that, that's, that's a set aside for the enemy. Something else that's referencing in John 8.34, he says, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He's calling them servants of the devil, sons of the devil. And I think that's, that and many other reasons, you can do a personal study in, in why Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. These are just some of the examples. Looking at the three fruit, and obviously this is not the main topic tonight, but I wanted to make the distinction that Jesus knows the difference. God knows the difference in the things that we do, the things that we say, and the people around us also know the difference. They know if we're being genuine. And we don't really have the ability to display true fruit of the Spirit unless we're first filled with the Holy Spirit. The first... Um, Fruit was love. Tonight we'll be looking at joy, peace, and long-suffering. And when we're looking at these things, there, you could really do a huge deep dive into each of these fruit and spend really weeks and weeks 
We don't have time for that. I won't do that tonight. So to make sure that we go through these, these three fruit, we'll be looking at the meaning, like what the actual definition means, the context in which we read it, and then how we apply that, how we see it being applied, or how, how we can apply it in our life. Before we do that, though, let's go before the Lord, pray that um, he is glorified, pray that he is the one speaking and not me, and uh, pray that he removes this fear that I'm about to fall down from. So, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful that you've allowed this opportunity tonight. Thank you for all those that were able to come out and those that are watching online and, or those that will watch it. We pray that this message, which really is your word, speaks to each of us. Lord, that we hear these things and meditate on them and Lord, that we find comfort and joy, we find your perfect peace. And Lord, that we are just able to live a life that brings you glory because of all that you have done that you do and that you continue to do, Lord. May you be honored and glorified tonight. I pray, Lord, also that uh, you open hearts to hear your word. Lord, that you would remove me from the pulpit, Lord, and just allow your word to be spoken tonight. We pray for your strength. We pray that you would remove any kind of fear or distraction that the enemy would use. And Lord, in this place, just... Fill me, fill each of us, Lord, with the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for being in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first fruit is joy. The word joy is found in the Bible over 150 times. And if you include the word joyous and joyful, then you're looking at over 200 times. The word rejoice which I guess is the verb of joy, is in the Bible over 200 times. Something that when I was doing some research I found, it says in modern Judaism, one, of the, um, one often hears the praise of the, and I'm going to probably say this wrong, the Simchat Torah, which is the joy of the law. The joy is the mark of God's people, both in the New Testament and in Old. The Simcha, the Hebrew means joy, so some scholars suggested only the word simcha, the verb sandwich, not sandwich, but sandwich, <laughs> meaning, and I'm probably saying that wrong too, to rejoice or be glad. And then gil in its verb and noun forms to rejoice and rejoicing fit the central idea behind the English word joy. I mention that because if, as you read about the word joy, there's ten, really ten translations of the word joy that we see in different translations of the Bible. So we'll be really be looking at that because that's kind of the main focus. And again, as we look at these things, we'll be looking at the definition, the uh, context, and then also the application. Joy, if you did an internet search, is defined uh, as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Now think about that for a minute, because many of us, I think, would define joy as an emotion. It's a feeling. It brings us happiness. It brings us pleasure. I came across a writing. It was called The Journal of Best Practices. And it was written by a man named David. I didn't see a last name on it. 
not King David, just David. He said, and this is important because he said there was a distinction. He made a distinction. He said, pleasure is like a Xanax. It's a one-time hit that generates a good feeling. But the good feeling wears off when the dose expires. Joy, on the other hand, is achieved from within and therefore sustainable. That's not to say that it's a permanent or automatic. We have to nurture and sometimes mindfully manufacture the joy, which is difficult to do these days. When we're constantly in a rush, medicating ourselves with social media or television in place of meditating. In these moments, we're either driving in survival gear or seeking divisionary pleasures. Pleasure, too, can be manufactured from within, but it's almost easier to procure it, so we do. And when it comes to sourcing our happiness, procurement is a dangerous method. Are you guys as confused as I am when I read that? When you hear that? He says he makes a distinction. He says it's manufactured, but he doesn't really draw a distinction. He says they're all manufactured. One you could buy, but you'd rather not because it's dangerous. But this is similar, I think, to how a lot of people would define joy. And I, I kind of harp on this just for a little bit because the Bible makes a distinction, which means God makes a distinction. Joy is not pleasure. Logos, and they have a Bible dictionary in there, it says, joy as the fruit, or is the fruit, of a right relation with God. Nowhere does it say pleasure. Nowhere does it say happiness. It's truly a fruit of a right relation with God, which is why happiness happens to be one of the fruit of the Spirit. What we see a lot where the world uses joy and pleasure interchangeably, the Bible makes the distinction, as we just said. The Greek word for pleasure is hedonism, which is the philosophy of self-centered pleasure-seeking. And the definition that the Bible dictionary gave even references 2 Timothy 3, in verses 2 and 4, as a contrast. It says, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And when we read Galatians, or we talked about some of the, the fleshly things in Galatians 5.19-21, through 21, don't those sound eerily familiar? And so true joy is the fruit of a right relation with God, and it can only be obtained from God. And the right relation with God is only possible because of Jesus and what he did. Now, understanding this, let's take a look at a couple of verses that we are all familiar with, but with this new kind of thought on joy and how it's not manufactured. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Think about that in context to having and being in the right relation with God. That's how 
our joy can be full. And that his joy, because he says, my joy, capital M, may remain in you. Remain during what? During anything. Nehemiah 8.10 says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. James 1.2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. This one, when I was reading this, I was thinking about, because I think about how in the world can you be joyful going through trials? And thinking about the things that we go through on a daily basis, our brothers and sisters around the world, can you really be filled with joy in persecution and pain and suffering and all these things that we, we go through? The answer is yes, because our right relation with God has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has, our, it has everything to do with God. Our joy comes from Him, not from anything that we're going through. Psalm 35 says, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Right? That's very, everybody knows that his joy comes because our right relation with God is what is important. And so, this idea of joy really makes a difference when we understand that we can't manufacture it. It's not something that we have to strive for or hope for that someone else is going to give us. We don't get true joy from our spouse, from our kids, from our friends, from the people around us. It's from God. Matthew Henry said, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures in which the tempter baits his hooks. Having the right joy of the Lord, or having the joy of the Lord, being filled with Him, removes our insatiable appetite for the pleasures of this world. His joy allows us to be content, to be at peace with where He has us, what He has us doing. And joy is how we are able to endure the sufferings that come. Elizabeth Elliot said the world looks for happiness through self-assertion. The Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment. If a man will let himself be lost for my sake, capital M, Jesus said, he will find his true self. Philippians 1.21 says it this way, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So looking at that, abandon all that that we have in our flesh. And this produces the joy when we surrender our hearts to him and to his will. That brings that, to, that true joy. It's not an emotional manifestation of our feelings. It's a response to God. And it's a gift from God. Now that's not to say that joy, true joy, won't manifest itself in our lives, because we know it does. Proverbs 5.18, it's the joy of marriage. Isaiah 9.3 is the joy of victory. Psalm 113.9, the joy of childbirth. So we experience joy in real ways in our lives. But it's not the simple emotional response to an event. It's a response to the blessings of God. Sometimes we see joy and peace in the same verse. Romans 5.13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may, be, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. These things happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
the gift from God and enables us to go through all the things that we do and yet still have His will be done. It's supernatural, guys. This is supernatural what we're talking about. And in case you missed it, in verse uh, 5, Romans 5, 15, 13, it says, all joy and peace. Not some of it. Not the occasional thing. All joy and all peace. All of Him. And since we're talking about peace, let's talk about peace. We've all heard and maybe even said the Hebrew word shalom. Or shalom lachem. I think I said that right. Which is peace to you. The word is also used as hello or goodbye. And this is essentially what you're saying. You're saying peace to you or peace for you. And really it's a great way to greet somebody. But it doesn't just mean that. Peace is defined, again, by the world as freedom from disturbance or it's equated to tranquility, which seems to be missing something. Peace is defined by the Bible dictionary as the biblical concept of peace is one in which God's authority and power over his created order are seen to dominate his relations with his world, including both the material and the human spheres. Peace denotes the wholeness and soundness and well-being that characterizes God and that God created in the world. As peace was broken due to human sin, such well-being constitutes the hope for ultimate restoration by God. In the biblical writings, peace is the wholeness that comes as a result of alignment with God's creative and redemptive purposes. Thinking of the garden before the fall, the world and everything was at peace. Then sin came and that peace went away. And we know that true peace, this peace that we're talking about here, is different from what the world can offer. Jesus even said so in John 14, 27. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace of the world is subjective. If it's only freedom and disturbance, as the world would define it, by whose definition is that thing that's disturbing? What one person finds disturbing, somebody else may not. They may even find it peaceful or necessary. And freedom from something that is not disturbing or creates happiness would be stressful, not peaceful. And we also know that the peace that we find in the world is not permanent. It only lasts for a specified amount of time and with conditions. Think about a ceasefire. There's two sides are at war. They're battling. Somebody calls for a ceasefire. Yes, there's a reprieve. There's some peace. But how many times do ceasefires fail? And so there's this anxiousness. There's a lot of fear and stress, even during the time of peace, because you know it's going gonna, it's gonna to kick back off at any point. And you don't want to be the first person to be the result of the ceasefire being broken. So we're not talking about the same thing at all. But when we talk about peace, I realize that it's 
it's all around us and all that we do, all that we see and hear and, and how we are, how we operate. And so when I was looking at this, I really saw, and there's more, but I saw four kind of parts of peace. The first one is peace with God. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. James 3.18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So it, it talks about, really, the things that we do in our lives that bring peace in the name of God and by His strength. And how are these things completed? When we're aligned to the will of God, fulfilling His plan and purpose, we are at peace with Him and His will. And, but please don't confuse that the peace that we're talking about actually results in the peace around us, because it doesn't. We know that Matthew 10, 34 says, and this is Jesus, do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. I'm simply talking about when we're in the will of God, we're at peace with him. Probably not many people around us. So don't think that that peace equates to our worldly peace, because it never, it, it never does, almost never. And so when we think about this true peace with God, we have it because of what he did for us. Romans 5, 1, 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The peace with God is obtained when we accept Christ as our Savior. 1 Peter 3.11 says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. When we're doing the will of the Father, we are laying aside all those things that our flesh is looking for or is, is craving. And all those things hinder us. But when we're turning away from those evil things, we're doing what is good, at least in the sight of Christ. So when we seek peace, we actually seek God. And as Peter tells us, we have to pursue it. It's not something that we obtain and then, you know, we have to constantly deny our flesh. We have to constantly seek, a, you know, uh, his forgiveness because we fail, we, we fall. We always have to be pursuing his peace. That's not to say that we need to always ask for his salvation. We don't. That's it's different. But we have to pursue peace. We have to pursue him. Hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, let's talk about it afterwards. <laughs> peace of mind is the second one. We see many examples of this in the Bible, where demons are cast out. People would have described these people as being out of their mind. And Jesus and the disciples, by the way of the Holy Spirit, literally restored peace in people's minds by casting out these demons. Pastor Mark talked a little bit about that this past Sunday. But the peace of mind that we're talking about here, even though that's a literal application of it, is probably better described as not having rest in your spirit. 
And think about your salvation. Those things that, when you were saved, those things that you all of a sudden realized, I shouldn't be doing these things anymore. And these things that you realize, I really should be doing these things now. And nobody had to tell you. Right? You just knew. Because you didn't have this peace in your spirit to say, yes, continue doing this, or no, start. No one had to tell you. God did. That's what that's more talking about. 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13 says, Furthermore, when I come to Troas to preach God's gospel, and the door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. This is that discernment, right? Something that you don't have peace, you need to... That you need to listen to that discernment from the Holy Spirit and go in that different direction. We're also talking about peace with one another. Ephesians chapter 4 says walking in unity. It talks about walking in unity. 4.3 says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When we walk locked arms with our brothers and sisters... We're dedicated to the same thing. We're oneness in the Spirit. We have the same Spirit. We have the same motivation and really goal, and that's for His will to be done. And it's really sharing the same heart to bring glory to God. You know what's also amazing about this? When I was kind of looking through peace with one another, Proverbs 16.7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And we see examples of this all the time. God can orchestrate that. We can't. And then the last, and I know we're moving these, through these kind of quickly, but um, we only have so much time tonight. And then the last for peace, it says, uh, the Bible calls it peace of God. Not a peace of God, but peace of God. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. This speaks to the fact that anything we experience on this earth, we can go through it really with an inner peace that doesn't make any sense. And I love that it says that surpasses all understanding because God doesn't want us to try and figure it out. Why, does not, why doesn't this make sense? Why can we go through these things? He's, like, he's telling us, it doesn't make any sense. Just believe me. You can have this peace. Just receive it. Matthew 8, 23, 27 tells, talks about the, the wind and the waves obeying Jesus and how during a great tempest arose on the sea, the disciples became scared and went to Jesus and he was asleep. And he shows us this beautiful example of being at peace even through a huge storm. This was a physical storm in the ocean, but that storm could be something that we're experiencing in our life. And we can get a good night's rest. We can walk through that storm in his perfect peace with that peace that surpasses all understanding because he gave us the ability to do so. So here's the question for you. Why aren't we at perfect peace? with the things that we have going on. Why aren't we at peace when we face a storm? 
Remember what Jesus told the disciples in verse 26. He says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? There's a point he's making here. We need to trust him. We need to believe him. Believe that he is able, that he can conquer those storms. Romans 8, 6 says, for to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We need to set our minds upon the things of Christ and only his. Just surrender to him. Set aside all those things of the world, all those things in the flesh. Make him our focus. And these things become more of a reality to us. So as we finish up peace, it's really what we have because of Christ. He gave us the ability, seeking him, accepting him as Lord and Savior first, and then being obedient to his calling and the things that we do for his glory. And how are we able to treat one another, this outward expression of who we are in Christ. We're at peace with one another, making peace with one another. And again, peace is independent upon our circumstances. We don't, you know, we come home and it was a bad day. And No, that, that's not, we need to be right with Christ so we can be right with the people around us and make peace with the people around us. Not further our issues because we had a bad day. So peace is given by God. It manifests itself regardless of the world we face. This peace, as we walk in this manner, shows the God-given ability to endure and have patience. And this brings us to our last fruit tonight, long-suffering. When I was thinking about this, these topics and the fruit and I, I really think this is, this is huge, at least for, for me, I was thinking about what must take place in us. Right? When we can go from living a life of Galatians 5.19 through 21, which is the fleshly stuff, to a life bearing the fruit of the Spirit, how far does Christ have to take us from where we were to where we are? really a new creation. And I was thinking about just the things the world has to offer. Nothing the world can offer what God has offered us. Nothing. No self-help books. Nothing. It's, it's supernatural. Even that is supernatural. So with long-suffering, we read, um, some versions say forbearance or patience. But what does this really mean? Again, the world defines long-suffering as having or showing patience in spite of troubles, especially those caused by other people. That's, that's close. It is close. But again, according to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, it's the ability to take a great deal of punishment from evil people or circumstances without losing one's temper, without becoming irritated and angry, or without taking vengeance. It includes the capacity to bear pain or trials without complaint, the ability to forbear or endure under severe provocation, and the self-control which keeps one from actually acting rashly even through suffering opposition and adversity. The usual Hebrew expression for patience is related to the verb to be long and involves the idea of being long to get riled or slow to become angry. 
two different Greek words are translated by the King James Version translators with the word patience. One of the words has the idea of remaining firm under, and that's under tests and trials, and better translated endurance or steadfastness. The other Greek word is related to the above Hebrew meaning, which was the to be long, and it's really, it refers to patience as being long-spiritedness or calmness of spirit, even through and going through under severe provocation and to not lose one's temper. So to be a long spirit and not to lose heart is to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles, to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries from others. The idea here is long-suffering really is made up of two parts, and it's what happens to us outwardly, but also what's going on inwardly. Obviously, we know the greatest visible examples of all this time is God. Right? He, we know he is long-suffering. And I would probably do a disservice if I tried to explain why that is. I mean, our salvation, us sitting in this room, is proof of his long-suffering. Uh, Pastor Mark, this past Sunday, uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it, talking about Manassas, King Manassas. Long-suffering. You know, I, it's interesting when I think about this word. I, I about long-suffering through these horrible trials, through these different things, without becoming irritated. As in the, the Baker Bible Diction talked about, even not even being irritated. Really, this is foreign to me. And I'm, I'm probably not alone here. Because when I'm thinking, I'm not thinking about the, the, the really hard things that we go through, right? I'm not thinking about, because I'm, I'm not hanging on a Roman cross. I'm not in a prison pit. I'm not, I'm not being tortured, right? So I, I, I think about what I go through, right? And what gets under my skin. And it might be something as simple as, you know, somebody saying something to me that just irritates me, right? It gets under my skin for some reason. A big one is, is the drivers around us that are completely oblivious to anybody else on the road. That's what I think about. And to, to read, to not even be irritated. Wow, I, I failed, you know. So I, I find that amazing that, you know, when Christ was hanging on the Roman cross, what did he say? He said, for, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Is that not amazing? Absolutely amazing. I get mad at a driver who doesn't see me and Christ is, is I, yeah, there's no comparison. And so, when we're looking at long-suffering, we realize that it's not just our ability to wait, like we would tell our kids, you know, wait, be, be patient. It's, it's not that. But it's also, what are we doing while we're going through these things? What is our attitude? What is our response? What is the condition of our heart? And are we content to wait? Are we content to deal with whatever we have to deal with? Do we trust God enough to be content to wait and endure? Do we trust him enough to, with whatever result that comes out of it? Especially if it puts us at a disadvantage. 
It's easy to go through a trial. No, it's not. It's hard to go through a trial. It's hard to face tribulation. But can we do these things? Can we sit behind the slowest driver in the fast lane and be content? Right? I mean, this is, this is how we apply these things, right? I, I have a long way to go, guys. <laughs> it's just something to think about, right? Um, I do, though, before we, as we kind of start to get to a closing point here, there's a man in the Bible, there's many men in the Bible, but one of them really went through a lot of stuff. And I use him as an example a lot because he went through things that I don't know of anybody else who did, but did so with the heart that he had. And I'm talking about Job. And he was a special man in, in many ways, but one because Satan himself wanted him. Right? We, the things that we deal with on a daily basis, it's, it's our flesh, it's our, our disobedience. It's, you know, yes, the, the enemy, but is it Satan? Probably not in most cases. Maybe for Pastor Tim because he's a pastor. But most of us, it's, it's the things that we have trouble putting down because we're disobedient. But not Job. He had Satan himself wanting to take everything. And we know that he's not alone. Um, where's my reference? It's gone. But we knew Peter was, a, was another one, right? Satan wanted to sift him as wheat. It's somewhere in my notes, and I can't find it, but that's okay. So Job's not alone here. But when we read Job's account, I really find this encouraging, and I really hope you guys too. At the close of the conversation between, between God and Satan, and how Satan ended up where he ended up to be able to talk to God, that's, I want to ask God how that took place. Because Satan was cast out. But somehow he was able to come before God and say what he said. But at the close of this conversation, and this is in verse 12, he says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has, meaning Job, is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. What I find really encouraging in that is that any power that Satan had and we know the destruction that took place with Job, and, but that power was given to him by God. And God limited his power. He said, you can't take his life. You can't touch his person. You can't take his life. And I just, I find that really encouraging because the things that we go through, it's sometimes easy to think, well, man, this is, does God even know? Yeah, he's still in control. He's given Satan the power to do whatever Satan can do, and God can take it away. That's why he's our defense. Many reasons why he's our defense. And so Job said in 13.15, Though he may slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Though he may slay me, I will trust him. And we know that, you know, Satan attacked his character he loses his property, his children. As a matter of fact, in Job 121, when he said that, 
What did he say when those first three things happened? He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Would that be our response if we lost what Job lost? Even in that first setting, that first series of losing things? I realize this, and what I didn't hear him say was, why is me? Oh, woe is me. Why do you allow these, allow these things to happen? Why do you, you know, bad things happen to good people? He didn't say any of this. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Such faith. We know that's not all that happened to Job. He attacked his health. His friends turned on him. I mean, he lost so much. But to be able to still say, yet I will trust him. And not just say, he really meant it. And we know he really meant it because in verse 22 it says, In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Wow. Such a great example of long-suffering in, in human terms. To endure what he went through and not charge God with any of it. He said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so thinking about this a little bit further, somebody who wrongs you in some way, and you think, how will I ever forgive them? How will I ever forgive them again? This has happened four times already. I'm not even sure they deserve to be forgiven. But we know that that's not the right heart. Right? We know that, matter of fact, Jesus talked about this. He said um, with Peter in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, 21 and 22, when Peter said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive them up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times, which means forgiveness needs to be given as many times as forgiveness needs to be given. And so when I think about this, I think about my own walk, our, our own walk. How many times have we failed? How many times have we fallen short? And maybe even on the same sin. Right? We're, we're tired of sinning on the same sin. I'm tired of getting angry at drivers on the street. I really want to be over that. But it, 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 it angers me to get angry. My flesh. Because I'm not talking about, you know, these horrible sins that we committed prior to salvation, where we really, you know, this, these are things where our flesh wells up. You know, may we never take the grace of God for, for granted. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But God is long-suffering, willing to forgive our sins. These, these things that we do on a daily basis that we don't catch in time. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me again. But God is long-suffering, and he does. He does forgive us. And if he's willing to forgive us in these areas, if somebody does the same thing to us, shouldn't we do the same thing that God does for us? I know it's harder. So what about a Christian who faces opposition to the point of persecution? 
They won't fight back for their rights. They won't fight back for their spouse, for their kids. No, what does the Bible tell us? If somebody strikes you, don't do that. If somebody strikes you in the cheek, you, you give them the other cheek. And we're supposed to call that joy. Remember when Peter and John were let go from the prison after being beaten? Acts tells us, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Long-suffering. So instead of fighting back, we endure. We allow the suffering to continue and, and escalate, even to the point of being receiving the blessing of a martyr. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. We know that God gave us a perfect example of long-suffering. 1 Timothy, Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is all long-suffering. But it's also about what we go through for him, the supernatural endurance necessary that he gives us to take on things on his behalf because it's for his glory. To plant a seed, to water that seed previously planted for his will to be done, his perfect plan. And anything that comes out of that, if it's painful, if it causes us Strife, counted a blessing, if it's for his sake. We can endure. Clement of Alexandria said this of endurance. And then I'll come to a closing, because we got some stuff to do this evening. It says, endurance also itself forces its way to the divine likeness, reaping as its fruit and passability through patience. If what is related to Ananias, he be kept in mind, he belonged to a number of whom Daniel, the prophet, filled with divine faith, was one. Daniel dwelt at Babylon, as Lot at Sodom and Abraham, who a little after became the friend of God in the land of Chaldea. The king of the Babylonians let Daniel down into a pit of wild beasts. The king of all, the faithful Lord, took him up unharmed. Such patience will the Gnostic or as a Gnostic possess. He will bless when under trial, like the noble Job, like Jonas, when swallowed up by the whale, he will pray, and faith will restore him to prophesy to the Ninevites. And though shut up with lions, he will tame the wild beast. Though cast into the fire, he will he be sprinkled with dew and not consumed. He will give his testimony by night. He will testify by day, by word, by life, by conduct. He will testify, dwelling with the Lord. He will continue his familiar friend, sharing the same hearth according to the Spirit, pure in the flesh, pure in heart, sanctified in word. The world, it is said, is crucified to him, and he to the world. He, bearing about the cross of the Savior, will follow the Lord's footsteps as God, having become holy of holies. That was Clement of Alexandria talking about the endurance R.C. Sproul said, The fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering, that is, patience. This virtue mirrors and reflects the character of God. It has no place for explosive tantrums from a hair-triggered personality, 
It is slow to anger. It endures the insult and the malice of others. It knows nothing of a judgmental spirit. Think about that last. It knows nothing of a judgmental spirit. Compare that to where we are in our walk and how we deal with the things of this world. A lot of times we hear things like, it's just my personality, right? It's, it's how I'm made. It's how God made me. It's how I'm wired. Let's stop telling ourselves that, right? <laughs> it's not good. We only have so much time to talk about a lot of stuff. And let's look at uh, really quick 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. You can turn there if you want. I want to read this because this really is supernatural, guys. This is talking about this long-suffering. It says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things." Absolutely amazing, guys. So as we close tonight, let's look at our lives and what we have going on. Thinking about the various trials we're in that we endure, the roadblocks we encounter, the weights we bear, the issues that keep us up at night, the things we stress over. Through these things, do we still bear the fruit of the Spirit? The love the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, and, and the others that we'll come to talk about in the coming weeks? Or does it hinder that fruit? Hinder our walk? Does 2 Corinthians 6, 4-10 through 10 describe us? Do we even begin to exhibit this in our lives? Sometimes I think it's crazy that it could, but we know it does. There's people that exhibit this in a far greater way than I am today, and I pray that, you know, through just com- continued surrender, that one day I can, that, that would better describe me. We know that it's possible because we know that in Genesis it says, let us, and that's a capital U, make man in our, that's a capital O, image. If we're made in there, which is the triune image of God, and we have Christ living in us, we do have the ability, but only because he's given it to us. And I know it's easier to say this than actually to live it out. It's easier to encourage a brother or sister when they're facing something than it is for us to face it ourselves. It's easier sometimes to pray with a brother and sister than it is for us to get on our knees and pray or even seek prayer for the things that we're going through. I do find it encouraging, though, and I hope you do too, that we don't manufacture any of this. This is all God-given. The true love, the peace, the joy, we get those from God. The long-suffering that we're able to experience is only because 
that he is long-suffering and has given us that ability. And we have that perfect example of all these from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and through that, the fruit of the Spirit, and we're able to do these things because he is able. And I'm going to ask you guys, if there's anything that you're going through right now that is hindering the fruit of the Spirit from really being a part of your life, don't leave before you pray over that. Grab a brother or sister. You don't need to give the details. God already knows the details. But ask for prayer. Seek that prayer. And ask God to do what only He's able to do. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful that you've allowed this opportunity for us to come together, Lord, to hear your word, to just peel the word back just a little bit, Lord, to see what it is you would have to say to us. Lord, we thank you that is it's infinitely more detailed than we've even looked at here, Lord. We've just scratched the surface of your love and your grace and what you have allowed us to go through and endure because of your love and the grace that you've given us. So Lord, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that if there are anything that they are suffering now, Lord, that they would put these things before the throne. Lord, that they would cry out to you, seeking what only you're able to do. Lord, you know the details, you know the hurt, and the pain, and the suffering. And Lord, I pray that you would by your will, remove these things. Give them the strength and the courage and the boldness and the endurance necessary, Lord, to walk this walk. Lord, thank you that we can bring these things before you. Thank you that you hear and answer prayers. And we thank you for this evening, Lord. As we step out of these doors, Lord, we just continue to bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.